Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Apple is bringing back a lot of money from overseas and Amazon is choosing which city uh, it wants to put its headquarters number two. And it has narrowed down the list from 238 cities to 20. Here to talk about all of this tech news is Spencer Soper, tech reporter in Seattle, who has been writing on the Amazon Bachelorette uh, show that we are currently admired in, as well as our own Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering all things technology. Uh, Spencer, let's start with you. Did Amazon give any color as to its selection process in this reality television show known as Headquarters 2 for Amazon? No, not not really. Uh, and this really looks like administrative cleanup. You know, they, they put out this uh, bid for proposals and they got way more uh, proposals than they anticipated, more than 200. And so it was simply a matter of it, it was just getting unwieldy for them. Uh, and inboxes were blowing up, you know, email boxes overflowing. So this is kind of like an administrative cleanup. We, we don't it's a huge, huge, very long short list. So it doesn't really give much indication of anything. You know, you've got West Coast cities, East Coast cities, Heartland cities, Southeast cities, Texas cities. Um, it, 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 but basically, it's it's it it includes all of the the front runners that that people were anticipating. So it's largely administrative cleanup and getting rid of a lot of those smaller markets that 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 likely never stood a chance. Spencer, uh, just a point about uh, perhaps it's not a cleanup. Maybe it's, uh, it's sort of an expenditure of uh, of energy on the part of Amazon because people, of course, on the Internet, they don't get enough advertising. Um, now, Amazon will be offering uh, am- advertising as, I guess, a form of entertainment on uh, on their website. Tell us about this move. Yeah, well, so advertising is really emerging. Um, if, you, if you think of Amazon in cycles, right, the, the core the core e-commerce business has grown and wowed investors with this with this tremendous top line growth and ability to steal steal market share from big box stores and department stores. But it's never been profitable. Then along came its cloud computing division, which was also growing quickly and adding a lot to the top line, but helping helping profitability. And now the latest thing we have emerging is is advertising. It's another fast growing business. But it's also extremely profitable. It doesn't require the big investments of uh, warehouses around the country or data centers around the country that its uh, e-commerce business or its cloud computing business require. So, so investors are excited about the revenue growth, but but more importantly, excited about the potential profit margins of the of the advertising business. Shira, I mean, it's it's not as if some of these tech companies need more cash, but it seems like the cash is just flowing in. And the question now is really how they plan to spend it. And Apple said that it was going to be uh, bringing back, what, $38 billion of uh, cash? What did they say exactly? Well, they didn't say exactly, but if there's, they did say they're expecting to spend, uh, expected to pay a tax bill of $38 billion on their overseas cash, which implies that they're going to bring back to the U.S. something like $240 billion of their overseas cash stockpile. And where is that going to go, do you think? I don't know. That's a very good question. Um, so it's worth saying, right, that Apple you know, patted itself on the back for 
paying the U.S. Treasury $38 billion. But the reason it's paying that sum now is that it's parked $250 billion or so uh, of cash that it considered permanently reinvested in its overseas operations because it didn't want to pay taxes on that money until now, believe the tax rate was too high. 35%. So now with the new tax code changes, that uh, tax rate goes down to 15.5%. So Apple thinks, well, this is a good opportunity to bring that cash home, and it's going to owe that tax uh, bill regardless of whether it brings the money back to the U.S. or not. So it's going to have something like $200 billion remaining after it pays taxes um, on that cash stockpile. And I think investors expect the company to spend it on things like stock buybacks, which is maybe not what uh, Donald Trump and his crew had in mind when they passed these um, large tax code changes. But Apple has also said, what, that they will consider spending some of this to expand their real estate empire? They're going to be adding maybe a new office. Uh, What could they be spending it on, at least domestically? Right. So uh, Apple's announcement yesterday did include some disclosures about U.S. investments and spending. Uh, I have to say, it's hard to know how much of that would have been done regardless of whether the tax code changed. So, yes, the company did announce that they're going to open a new location somewhere in the U.S., specifics TBD, that will house customer service kind of personnel, at least initially. Again, it's possible they may have done that anyway. They have a customer service location in uh, near Austin, Texas uh, already, and they made some disclosures about hiring 20,000 people in the U.S., although they already have 84,000 employees in the U.S., and it's likely that at the rate that they've been adding to that, that 20,000 people in five years is uh, not a deviation from their current rate. So, Spencer, come on in here because Shira is talking about a ton of expansion here and hiring plans. Those hires have to go somewhere. And I'm wondering, you know, Amazon's getting all the attention, but are there other big tech companies that are also erecting new buildings and, you know, hiring mass workforces? And are these are these cities lobbying for, for that activity as well? Well, I think that the Amazon HQ2, just by the nature of its size, has kind of sucked all the oxygen out of the room. But yes, I mean, cities are, are always looking for um, any type of economic development, even 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 uh, uh, small businesses, maybe creating 50 or so jobs, will get uh, an audience and will get incentives depending on the market. And the, the, attract, uh, the attraction of the tech jobs is this generally, you know, clean office type setting um, jobs that, that pay good wages. And that's always the uh, uh, the problem or the, the tension around job creation tax credits is, okay, we want job growth, but what kind of jobs are we investing in? And, you know, good paying, uh, high-skilled tech jobs, generally worth the investment in terms of that, that ripple effect because people earn enough to buy homes and, and spend elsewhere in the economy. Shira, uh, you heard the Spencer, uh, we were talking about the advertising business that Amazon is looking for. Who gets hit by that? Facebook? Google? Probably not. I mean, it's and I think Spencer did a good job in his story kind of talking about the potential losers there. It doesn't seem like the money that's being spent on on advertisements on Amazon is necessarily money that would have been spent on Facebook um, or Google anyway. But, you know, that's the kind of money that companies spend places like Walmart, right, to get better uh, shelf placement at big box stores, right? Those are the kinds of budgets that are maybe instead shifting to Amazon, which is now getting the sort of equivalent of uh, money to put Tide at, at on the shelves at eye level. 
I see. So the 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 the, the button, right? The the tide buttons, or the what are they called? The the, the Amazon sells you that dash button. You can, dash yeah, button. There Thank you go. You, Thank you, Spencer. Yeah. They're not doing their job. You got to have advertising in addition, right, Spencer? Yeah, and and what Shira just mentioned. This, if you look at. Uh, uh, traditional marketing, especially p- big CPG brands, consumer packaged goods brands, these are the products that are lining the shelves of a supermarket. Uh, they've, they've developed a program over years of a combination of TV commercials, radio commercials, display advertising in newspapers and magazines, coupons in your mailbox. And what Amazon brings is kind of a one-stop solution for all of that. Um, and even, even the in-store placement, they call it like trade promotional. But basically, they're paying for an end cap, or they might even not necessarily be paying the retailer, but offering a discounted price that that retailer can promote to get an end cap placement in a store. Um, that, that spending, all of that combined is like $225 billion wow. for consumer packaged goods companies. So even if Amazon takes a, right. takes a piece of that, there's a lot of room for a lot of ceiling there. Thanks very much. Spencer Soper, Bloomberg News reporter, and our thanks also to Shira Oviday, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. We turn our attention now to the world of NAFTA and trade with Jacques Gordon. He is Kellogg School of Management real estate professor and the global head of research and strategy for LaSalle Investment Management. They help to manage more than $60 billion worth of real estate assets. Jacques, thank you very much for being with us. You know, President Donald Trump yesterday said that terminating the North American Free Trade Agreement would result in the, quote, best deal to fix the 24-year-old trade a pact between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. But lawmakers, industrial groups, agricultural uh, proponents, they all say this is not a good idea. What do you glean from this back and forth? Well, it it could be posturing. Um, uh, Of course, the U.S. president has um, uh, spoken uh, on both sides of this issue at at some point saying that he was a little bit flexible about NAFTA last week. And then this week, uh, certainly heading into the sixth round of discussions uh, uh, scheduled up in Canada and Montreal on January 23rd, it could be it could be just being able to put a bit of fear of God into the uh, other trade representatives. Representatives from Mexico and Canada, who knows? Um, but in the world of real estate, similar to other industries, uh, we are watching uh, the NAFTA negotiations with great interest. Um, I think uh, real estate is not um, uh, in the direct line of path of the of the of the NAFTA negotiations, but uh, but we're watching them carefully because, of course, the. Um, uh, manufacturers, agriculture industries, financial services industries, well, those, those folks are all tenants in our buildings. And so um, my firm and others uh, have huge operations um, in, in all three countries, and we'll be watching carefully for any, um, any rollback that makes it harder for our tenants to do business. And that's, that's really the focus that uh, probably most real estate people are watching very carefully. You have big firms uh, like Brookfield, like LaSalle, um, uh, many firms who are, are investing uh, and, and operating large portfolios of property uh, across the borders of Canada, U.S., and Mexico. So, so we do care about this topic as well. Amazon, for example, released uh, their shortlist 
I can I put short in in air quotes. Uh, since twenty twenty cities uh, for their potential headquarter too, uh, and it basically is who's who of cities in North America. But it included Toronto, which I thought was very interesting. And I'm just wondering, can you walk us through what the real estate effects would be on a city that won this golden ticket that Amazon is kind of hanging out there? Well, Lisa, the, the the real estate world is is really watching this carefully because um, uh, what's happening is is all of those um, uh, what was it 230 cities uh, not only said uh, do we welcome uh, Amazon and we've got the workforce and we've got the tax abatements but we have the the locations we have the buildings we have the real estate uh, development uh, expertise to handle you now we're down to 20. And Toronto is um, very competitive uh, on, on all those uh, fronts. And um, just as a good example, uh, Sidewalk Labs, which is part of Alphabet, part of that, that enormous uh, uh, empire um, that um, uh, is, is, is um, looking at doing more in cities, has chosen Toronto as a place where they, they will basically be working on developing a city of the future. It wouldn't surprise me that 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 whole effort and the Amazon bid that Toronto put forward was linked in some way. Uh, I think all these cities are trying to say, look, we're the place where knowledge industries are are going to be comfortable. And a a firm like Amazon should consider uh, Toronto uh, very, very seriously. It makes total sense to me that Toronto's on the list. of course, they're going to have a tough competition with the likes of uh, Washington, D.C., and Boston, and Atlanta, and Austin, who are all on the list as well. But um, look, Lisa, I think, I think in terms of location, 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 um, Vancouver, um, uh, Toronto, um, uh, these, these cities compete right alongside American cities for jobs. When things get expensive in, in coding world in, in San Francisco, Vancouver is a place that um, um, tech firms like to go as a way to diversify their operations. So there's a lot of just um, integration of of the way that companies in technology, as well as the ones I know Bloomberg's covering on industrial, auto manufacturing, agriculture, of course, those supply chains are all integrated across three countries too. But there are a lot of other industries, real estate being one, financial services being another, technology being another, that really operate pretty seamlessly across across all three borders. So, um, um, you know, it, it's very difficult to, to read what uh, uh, Robert uh, Lighthizer may be thinking and what, what the White House may be thinking as they go into the Montreal talks. But uh, we're all hoping that a, a complete rollback of NAFTA is just posturing and not really, not really, not really on the table. Jacques Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. Jacques Gordon is Global Head of Research and Strategy for LaSalle Investment Management, which oversees uh, nearly $60 billion in assets. Also, Professor of Real Estate at Kellogg School of Management coming to us from Chicago. He says that the traditional approach to being a passive, intermediate, maturity-focused investor seeking income only is no longer suitable for municipal bond investors. Well, here to tell us why is Bob DeMella. He is the co-head of municipal managers for Mackay Shields, helping to manage more than $23 billion. He joins us in our 1130 studios. Bob, thank you very much for coming in. So why is that no longer a suitable perspective for investors? 
I think what has happened is if you look at the shape of the municipal yield curve, your average investor in the high-grade intermediate space no longer has a, a reasonable income stream anymore. And that's the primary goal for a bond or a bond strategy, right? But you also have a reasonable amount of duration risk in that space. And so we're advising clients to actually move away from either a little longer out the yield curve or a barbell strategy, which is even better. That's going to make a big difference for them on an income stream and also potential total return, especially given our outlook with regards to the yield curve. What, what do you mean? I mean, because I'm looking, for example, at a 10-year New York state, you'll get about 2%. Correct. And so, uh, as an example, we have our, uh, our, our flagship national fund. You can attain around a three and a quarter, three and a half percent yield um, if you're taking more of a barbell strategy, being a little more creative with regards to the yield curve. The problem with that bond that you just pointed out, right, it's, it's a 2% yield. It's an eight-year duration. And so, therefore, it doesn't take much of a rise in rates, and, and then your net total return is negative. And you're kind of playing catch up with that. And so we think income is really important. And so people should look at their overweight allocation that they have today with the high grade intermediate part of the municipal yield curve and and allocate away from that. Let's just zoom out a little bit in just to take a look at the municipal bond category as an asset class. Mm. There was a $3.1 billion inflow into municipal bond funds in the week ended January 10th. This set an all-time high record. This was from ICI, the investment uh, company institution for for investment managers. And I have to wonder, you know, this follows pretty steady flows, not this high. There's a lot of demand for this stuff right now. That should be good for municipal bonds, no? It is definitely good for bonds, and it's one of our main themes for 2018. We believe the municipal marketplace, one of our insights at Mackay, is that the the ratios of one of the relative value ratios that's always used is muni AAA yields versus AAA treasuries. Historically, on the long end, it's around 88%. We believe you're going to test 20-year lows this year. In other words, that the yields on municipal bonds will fall much lower relative to treasuries than in the past has been sustainable. Correct. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. One is technicals. Really strong demand, increasing demand, especially for high tax states like California, New York, New Jersey, in addition to a significant reduction in supply. Tax reform has a big reduction in supply going into 2018. So here's what I'm struggling with, because we hear about the the infrastructure problems that a lot of states are having. We're not hearing a lot about how that's going to get financed. There's uh, certainly some issues with high-tax states. What's the revenue going to look like given uh, potential exoduses uh, on the heels of Mm -hmm. this tax plan? Um, How are you thinking about that? Does that concern you at all? Yeah, so you have to... plans? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you pick the the problem, I'll give you, you know... Yeah, no, there's... there's, Absolutely, but uh, the the municipal marketplace is a very strong, credit-worthy marketplace, and uh, without issues, no. But most states have done pension reform. The overall credit characteristics of the municipal marketplace is very positive. Infrastructure will definitely play out with it. As you know, Washington, D.C. is grappling with some kind of infrastructure solution. The infrastructure need in in the United States will 
will not be borne 100% on municipal entities. As a matter of fact, you have seen it. They've pulled away from a lot of the projects. We've had an introduction of the P3 structures, the public-private partnerships, which is part of the funding for um, uh, Tappan Zee Bridge replacement, Gothels Bridge, and also LaGuardia Terminal replacement. That brings private equity, private debt into the mix, in addition to, yes, taxpayer municipal bonds. And so we actually think the supply of the municipal marketplace this year is going to shrink. The, the new issue volume is probably going to drop 20 to 30 percent. That's a big reduction. Bob, I'm just go back to this idea of having to change the way you view municipal bond investing because of the tax mm-hmm. overhaul. If you hold whatever bond you purchase to maturity and you're okay with the interest rate that you're getting, I assume that you should be smiling at the end of that particular term, correct? So I'm wondering about the alignment of interests because if you're um, a manager of municipal debt, your interest obviously is to make sure that you don't show any big capital losses. But if you're an actual investor, you don't really care in terms of the interim what happens to your capital. You just want to get paid and you know you're going to get your money back at the end. So why go further out on the yield curve for that extra bit of yield? Um, in, in many cases, it's not just a little extra bit of yield. And I'm not talking about increasing your interest rate risk. Again, I threw out barbell strategy. With a barbell strategy, you're not increasing your duration risk, and you actually can Match insulate- it to something short-term. You can match it with something short-term, exactly, and you can insulate yourself from the risk that what if happens if the shape of the municipal yield curve shifts? As an example, with tax reform, there's the potential for banks and property and casualty insurance companies reducing their exposures in the municipal marketplace because their tax rates have come down. Well, banks and property casualty insurance companies are, own very large books of high-grade intermediate municipal bonds. Now, I don't think they're going to be net sellers per se, but they're certainly got, not going to be marginal buyers in 2008. So what's going to happen in that part of the yield curve versus the rest of the yield curve? So I'm an active municipal bond money manager. I can absolutely sit there in front of a client and say, listen, look and think actively in the municipal space. You're absolutely right, Pim. Most clients don't think actively in their muni book. They put it aside. It's low risk, low vol. And as long as it gives them a reasonable tax-exempt income stream, here at Mackay, we're a little different. We say, I'm going to give you capital preservation. I'm also going to give you a slightly better than attractive income stream, but also I'm going to look at the entire municipal marketplace from a total return lens because at the end of five or 10 years, as you pointed out with your time horizon, if I can be a little more opportunistic and make money for you in between with some certain strategies, your after-tax return is substantially better without a significant increase in risk. Real quick, do your clients understand what you tell them when you explain this to them? Yeah, we have, you know what, we have a great clientele base, not only in the, in the pure retail space, but the ultra high net worth family office client space. We are different. Uh, so I'm I'm a different uh, participant. Our team is different in the municipal marketplace. We absolutely look at it through a total return lens. There's opportunities out there as to how you, you can make money. Um, and there's other risks out there with it, right? Our insights this year talk about it's a return and a risk profile in the current year. I think when you look at the different credit and yield curve Um, issues with regards to not only tax reform, but everything else that's going on with regards to the Federal Reserve. Yes, I I will sound different than most money managers in the municipal space. Bob DeMella, thank you so much for joining us. Bob DeMella is co-head of the Mackay Municipal Managers. 
Another story that we're keeping track of is Airbus, which seems to be getting a lifeline. Uh, I want to bring in George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, who joins us now. Uh, This seems like a pretty big deal, Airbus getting the $16 billion order from Emirates, yet shares up uh, just under 1.3%. Why are shareholders not rallying more around this? Hey, good morning, Lisa. I, I think the uh, the challenge here is that the A380 doesn't make any money for Airbus, and this order doesn't materially change the landscape for the A380. And the reason I say that is that the order book is still very, very much um, uh, Emirates-focused. There's some 95 in order. Actually, I think with this, we'll go to 115 uh, firm orders, and 60 of those will be to Emirates. I don't really see it changing the production rate. Right now, uh, Airbus building about 12 of these a year. They'll they'll just dip down to about 80 a year. They can't make a profit there or much of a profit there. So, so the program is still sort of limping along with one real customer, which is Emirates, not making any money. This doesn't change either of those outlooks. They're not, you know, Emirates is not going to uh, bring these orders forward quickly, so that it's not going to change production rates. So uh, the program is still very challenged. It's just it, we've got a little more order in the in, in the back of the in the back of the backlog now. George, is Emirates just really buying a big repair shop because if the Airbus was going to close down the production line, good luck trying to get those things fixed in the future? Yeah, I mean, not so sure they're buying a big repair shop. I mean, I understand what you're saying. and uh, Anybody I think- else fly the A380 and want to fly it? I mean, there are other people that do fly it, right? It's uh, Singapore, Singapore flies it, but they've got a couple parked. Air France flies it. Lufthansa flies it. Korean Air flies it. Um, in time, there may well be problems with getting uh, spares on on the airplane. I don't, I don't think we're near that yet. Um, Rolls makes an engine for it, plus there's a, a consortium with GE that makes an engine for it. The Safran Consortium, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I believe so. I have to go but isn't but isn't that. the a but isn't the A three eighty the wrong aircraft for the time? I mean, it is, and you know where we're seeing a concentration of orders is really in the narrowbody fleet, which is one hundred fifty to two hundred some airplanes, and the small widebody fleet, which is seven eighty sevens, A three fifties, A three thirties. That's where the bulk of the orders are being placed. Those or those airplanes are sort of two fifty to maybe up to three hundred ish seats. That's where we see the bulk of demand right now. At the top of the wide-body world, the A380s and 747s, and even the larger twin engines, the 777, we're seeing less demand. And it's just harder to put those airplanes into markets and not have to dilute fares to do it. So airlines are not as excited about those airplanes right now. And again, so this sort of helps this airplane continue to roll down the road. I think Airbus thinks somewhere down the road there's a lot of demand for this airplane, and they're just trying to get it to survive. Um, Until then. It helps. Yeah, yeah it helps, but it's, 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 it's hard. Thanks very much, George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Enjoy and it. Defense Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Columnist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.